adults, would you find the book of Job, Old Testament book of Job, just before you get to Psalms, you see Job, and we're going to read uh, beginning at verse 1, uh, we've been singing about worshiping Jesus, and the title of the message is, uh, Will a Man Worship God for Nothing? Notice this is a very familiar story. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 and then jump down to verse 6. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now I drop down to verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And another angel came, a fallen angel. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. And then Satan says to God, But now stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Young folks, if you come to know the Lord Jesus, and adults who do know the Lord Jesus in this room, if you come to know him sooner or later, there's no doubt about it, you're going to walk through a dark valley of adversity. It might be persecution from other people, hostility towards you because you claim to be a follower of the Lord. It may be a, a serious illness, even death of a loved one. It may be a crisis in your family. It may be some kind of financial calamity. It can be a number of different adversities or afflictions, but these things are inevitable realities in the Christian life. Matter of fact, James writes to some born-again followers of Jesus, and he says to them, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Notice James didn't say, if you fall into various trials. 
He said, when you fall into various trials. I've been a Christian for almost 40 years. This old man used to be a rock and jazz drummer. That's what I was long before you even existed on this planet. But I've been following Jesus for now almost four decades. I came to know the Lord in New Orleans, Louisiana. And following him, I've been through a variety of adversities. And every genuine follower of of Jesus who walks on the narrow road is going to go into all kinds of variety of trials, troubles, tribulations. That follower of Jesus is going to be attacked Various levels of intensity. Sometimes these storms, these adversities, come from expected places and people. Sometimes these storms of adversity come from unexpected places and people. And James said, this believer, this follower of the Lord, falls into this trial. It's the word that means he he or she is suddenly Uh, in this unexpected distress, like they've fallen into a pit and the walls are so high that they can't can't climb out on their own. That's the picture here. And there's no doubt about it, I've been in a few of those deep pits of adversity. Now, these adversities, many times they've been unexpected to me, but they were not unexpected to God. And Job finds himself in terrible adversities. And they are unexpected calamities to him. But none of these storms he went through were unexpected or unexplained in heaven. And you know every storm, every affliction, every adversity that I walk through, it cannot come into my life unless God permits it. And if God permits it, He has a purpose in it. Now, I have an enemy. His name is Lucifer, Satan, and he has minions of demons. And he is my sworn enemy. And this enemy, the Bible says, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But you know that roaring lion is on a chain. He is on a chain that is held by the sovereign Lord and he cannot bring a trial, trouble, or tribulation to the doorstep of a born-again follower of Jesus without personal permission from headquarters. This is what we're going to learn tonight. And the issue is, the message we're going to see tonight is that every adversity, every affliction, every trial in the life of a genuine follower of Jesus, is a call to worship. Which is what we've been talking about here all week. What is genuine worship? Every trial, trouble, tribulation that comes into my life is a fresh call from God to place the totality of my life at His disposal as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice so that I might walk through that fiery trial, that storm, in a manner that is pleasing to him. Now, my enemy, this roaring lion, what's he, what he wants to do with adversity or affliction is he's trying to tempt me to ruin my testimony for the Lord. 
in the midst of this storm. Thus, I must understand that God sovereignly rules over every fiery trial in my life. And the purpose of that storm when a person is a follower of Jesus is to put the authenticity of their faith on display and put the genuineness of their worship of the Lord on public display. So every time I find myself in fiery trials, uh, for instance, in Uganda where I had three automatic weapons pointed at my head, or when I was in Kenya and there were about 25 people around me and another guy saying, kill him! Anytime I go into a trial, a health trial, at the point of death, needing life-saving surgery, I know God's in charge of that. And I know I'm supposed to walk through that in a way that magnifies Jesus. And you know what that does? That proves to the accuser of the brethren, Satan, that saving faith in Jesus perseveres through every trial. And not only does it persevere, but that believer will answer the call to worship the Lord in the dark valley of adversity. Now, that's just on, just on the front porch. I'm walking in the door again. Notice number one in verse eight. Watch now, this man Job was living a life of spiritual prosperity. I said spiritual. He was a wealthy man, but he was living a life of spiritual prosperity. That's what God said about him in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. This was the godliest man on the planet. A blameless man, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. In other words, no one in Job's life could make a just accusation against Job about any moral or ethical failure in his life. This was a man who reverenced God. This was a man who worshipped God. This was a man who was being led in paths of righteousness for the Lord's name's sake. Not only was he a man of spiritual prosperity, he was a man of family and financial, material prosperity. We're not going to talk about it long tonight, but it's very rare to know a man who's both materially prosperous and spiritually prosperous. Because most wealthy men worship their money. And here is a rare exception of a man who was not only materially prosperous, but spiritually but what happened? Job became the object of a heavenly conversation, didn't he? Everything changes in verse 6. Now there was a day when angels, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord. And another angel came among them. Satan came among them. You know Satan has to present himself to the Lord? Satan was forced by Almighty God to give an account of what he'd been up to on this earth. Now, God didn't need to know. God already knew. God is omniscient. He's having Satan confess. 
what he's up to on this earth. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Just like Gabriel the archangel must present himself before the Lord. Just like Michael the archangel must present himself before the Lord. Lucifer, Satan, this fallen angel creation of God must present himself before the Lord. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand and think too lowly of Satan. But I also don't want you to think too highly of Satan. Satan's for real. He has supernatural power to carry out wicked and sinister schemes on this planet. However, all of Satan's power that he has is granted power. <clears throat> and it's limited power. He's a created being. God is the creator. God doesn't have a little more power. He has infinitely more power than the powers of darkness. Jesus said, All authority has been given unto me in the heavens and on the earth. What percentage of authority is all authority? That's 100%. And that means to me, as a follower of Jesus for these four decades, nothing can happen in my life from the hands of this avowed enemy without the divine permission of the Lord. And without divine limitations from the Lord. Satan must report to God before he can advance or withdraw in the life of a born-again believer, a follower of Jesus. Notice verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? What am I saying here? God is causing this fallen angel to publicly confess what he's been up to. He's causing the enemy of souls to accuse himself with his own words. Now, you have an enemy of your soul. And he is constantly on mission in this fallen world. He is using all the things in this world system to blind adults and young people to the value of their soul, to the condition of their soul, to the destination of their never-dying soul, and the need of their soul to be saved. That's what he's up to. The God of this age, little g, has blinded the minds of those who have not truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus should shine on their blinded minds and they'll be saved. But we're looking at another one of his wicked strategies tonight. And that's the focus here. The accuser of the brethren, Lucifer, Satan, is constantly seeking to ruin the testimony of those who are true followers of Jesus. The true followers of Jesus are called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. They are called to live a life that testifies to everyone else. For me to live is Christ. 
They are commanded to place their life at the disposal of the Lord so that they might live a Jesus-centered life before their peers. They might live a Jesus-directed life before the people that God brings within the sphere of their influence of their lives. They might live a life that is pleasing to Him. And this is one of God's ordained means to evangelize people who don't know Jesus, and that is to see a genuine follower of Jesus that is living a life that's centered on Jesus, directed by Jesus, pleasing to Jesus. So the avowed enemy of the Lord Jesus wants to tempt true followers of Jesus to live in self-centered ways instead of Jesus-centered to live a life that's directed by self, that's pleasing to self, instead of living a life that's directed by God and pleasing to the Lord. So notice what uh, he says. Follow me here in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, he's putting Job on display to the devil. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He is a blameless and upright man, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. Notice that it's not Satan bringing Job to the Lord's attention. It's the Lord God bringing this godly man Job's life to Satan. It's God himself commending the life of his worshiping servant, Job. Job is declaring an authentic life of worship, and God is saying to Satan, he's putting Job's life of worship on display. And that brings us to verse 9. Job becomes the target of satanic accusation. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And he begins to accuse here in verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? You can easily put in the word worship God, serve God. Does Job worship God for nothing? Satan so poisoned with pride after his fall into sin, that when he observes a genuine follower of the Lord living a life that's pleasing to the Lord, he assumes that that believer has ulterior motives for worshiping God. Satan's mind is so contaminated with wickedness that when he sees a follower of the Lord worshiping the Lord, he always uh, immediately assumes selfish motives. So what's Satan doing here? He's simultaneously charging God with buying Job's worship and he's charging Job with worshiping the Lord for selfish reasons. Satan is actually attempting to slander God by saying the only reason that Job worships you is because of all these benefits he gives you. He doesn't worship you because of the glory of who you are. He's only worshiping you because of this great 
package of family, financial, and health benefits. That's what he's saying. The abuser of the brethren is trying to set God against Job and Job against God. And he says in verse 10, notice he continues to say, God, Lord, Master, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? That's that important truth I was speaking about earlier. When God determines to protect one of his youngins, one of his children, Satan can absolutely do nothing in their lives. That's what Satan is saying to the Lord. Lord, Master, Boss, <laughs> you and I both know that you have a hedge around Job's life and I can't touch him unless you permit me to. I'm just a created being. You are the creator. That's what he's saying. Uh, this fallen angel is saying, Lord, I'm shackled to your sovereignty. I can't touch him unless you allow me to. Notice verse 11. Oh, but notice what Satan says to God. This is not God speaking to Satan. This is Satan speaking to the Lord God. But now stretch out your hand, God, and touch all that he has. I can't touch him, God. But if you'll let down the protection and let me work him over, he'll cease to work for you. If you allow me to bring all these adversities and afflictions to his life, I'll prove to you that he just worships you because of the benefits. He doesn't worship you because of who you are and all of your glory. If you let me take away these blessings, if you let me allow, bring him into adversity, if he is grieved by various trials, he'll cease to worship you. What am I trying to say? In a genuine follower of Jesus' life, every storm, Every fiery trial is a call to worship. It's a call afresh and anew to declare your allegiance to him and your adoration to him above anyone or anything else. Now that's good news. Satan and his demons can't touch me unless, unless God allows it. You know, if he could, if you're here and you're a genuine believer, if Satan could touch you without God's permission, he'd murder you by midnight. That's good news. But I got some bad news. God allows it. In his wisdom and his timing, he allows it. There are times when he lets down the hedge. He has a limit on it. He has a purpose in it. And what is it? God is putting the authentic authenticity of his children's faith and worship on display. 
He is proving once again to the accuser of the brethren that followers of Jesus will worship God even when they lose their most precious blessings. And this is the question tonight. This is the message. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Will you worship God for nothing? Will you worship Him when everything is shattered? Just for who He is. When everyone and everything else is taken away, will you worship God for nothing? Remember, true and acceptable worship is to live our life in such a manner that we are demonstrating for me to live is Christ. He is my pearl of great price. He is my supreme love. He is worthy of my unconditional worship and service. You know, there's a lot of people, young people and adults, they profess faith in Jesus, but really their faith in Jesus is not saving faith. Oh, lots of folks have a shallow, superficial, temporary, artificial faith in Jesus. It's not real faith, it's phony faith. And when the dark adversities of this life come to their life, they fall away. They believe for a while, but in the time of tribulation, testing, trial, they prove that they're shallow soil, they're phony they're false worshipers. They came to Jesus to get some benefits from him. But they didn't want Jesus as their king. As their master. They, they wanted what they can get from him. But they don't want him for who he is. It's like Judas. For three years he publicly attached himself to Jesus. But it was a superficial Attachment. He was only seeking personal benefits. He was not interested in denying himself, taking up his cross, and following Jesus. So this is a penetrating question. Will you worship and serve God for nothing? Except him. Simply for who he is. Do you truly believe in your heart that the Lord Jesus Christ, that God the Father, is totally worthy of your worship? And when I say worship, and we're not talking about singing, we're talking about living our lives for the glory of the Lord. Is he worthy to live for his glory simply because of who he is when the temporary blessings are taken away. Since Satan couldn't bring an accusation against Job's character, he was bringing an accusation against Job's motives. And Satan desires to tempt the believer to exit from the path of worship when they're in the middle of the valley of adversity and thus contaminate their testimony for God. This is the challenge. 
And today in the New Testament, will you worship Jesus Christ as your Lord in the consecration sacrifice of worship when there's nothing else, when everything else is gone? Will you still worship Him? Will you say, though He slay me, yet I will serve Him. Satan says, no, you won't. God says the authentic worshiper will keep on worshiping. Notice verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't lay a hand on his person. So there's three categories Satan wanted to attack. There was Job himself, his personal health. There was Job's family and his servants. And there was Job's wealth his possessions. God, the omnipotent, sovereign God, gave permission to Satan to attack all his possessions, his servants, his family. But he did not yet permit Satan to attack Job's health. That was going to come in the second attack in chapter 2. Now notice carefully who let down the head. God let down the hedge. The Lord let down the hedge. Satan could do nothing unless the Lord allowed it. He was limited by God's sovereign authority. But the Lord did permit it. Why would he do that? Why would God permit this? Well, because he's putting Job's authentic worship on display. He's proving that my man worships me for myself and not for the blessings that I give him. Now let's move on down. We're, we're, we're going to move forward here. Notice the third point I want to make and it's in verse 14 and 17 and it's this. Job became the object of disastrous devastation. Verse 14, and a messenger came from Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. This servant says, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, that, that servant, here comes another servant. Another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, what do I want you to see here? Just for a moment. Did you see the Lord is sovereign over the nations? Satan is the one who's manipulating uh, the Sabians and the Chaldeans. Uh, he's the one who is influencing them. He's the one who's inflaming their wicked hearts to kill, steal, and destroy all of these animals and these servants. Satan is the immediate cause of these great adversities. But Satan could not inflame them to do these things unless the Lord permitted it. 
right? The psalmist says in Psalms 22, 28, speaking of God, he rules over the nations. In the same book of Job, Job 12, 23, God makes nations great and he destroys them. Did you hear that? Including the United States of America. God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. Oh, the Sabians, the Chaldeans are personally responsible, but they could not have incited these atrocities unless God permitted it. Therefore, what do I do? I worship the Lord in the middle of national calamities. I continue to worship my Lord in the middle of a pandemic. Because my Lord is sovereign over the nations. But he's also sovereign over nature. Uh, verse 16 says, The fire of God fell from heaven and destroyed 7,000 sheep and all servants except one. This is a great tragedy. This is a serious blow to Job's prosperity and his employees, his servants. And again, Satan is the immediate cause of these catastrophes. But God permitted it. God allowed Satan to bring down the fire from heaven because God's in ultimate control of the fire from heaven. Verse 18 says, A great wind struck the house, oh, and killed all ten of his sons and daughters. It must have been something like a tornado. And this is the most profound adversity of them all. It's like a dagger piercing his heart because there's no greater grief than the premature loss of sons and daughters. Oh, but notice, this is not Satan's wind who brought the catastrophe. Both the fire and the wind belong to God. Satan was the delivery boy who brought the wind, but he couldn't bring the wind unless the one who controls the wind allowed it. That's what the Bible says. Psalms 147 and verse 18, speaking of the Lord and God, He causes the wind to blow and the waters to flow. Nature doesn't have a mind of its own. Satan is not the sovereign controller of nature. The one who created nature sovereign over every aspect of nature. And that's why I can worship God whether I'm in a clear day or a storm. That's why I can worship my Father whether I'm in the, uh, the, the, with the winds at my back and everything's going wonderful or the winds of adversity are howling in my place. Here are these successive blows. Three of them. He loses all of his wealth. This is the wealthiest man on the planet. One day, the next day, he's in abject poverty. He has lost all of his employees except 
for a few of those employees, but far beyond that, the most terrible and tragic shock of all is he's not lost one of his children. He's not lost half of his children. He's lost all ten of his children. And this is the most godly man in the world at that time. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost his children. And he's about to lose his health. God has never promised health and wealth and prosperity. God has never promised an immunity to trials, troubles, and tribulations in the lives of his followers. He has promised to give us amazing grace so that we can walk through even the deepest and darkest valleys of adversity in a manner that would magnify him and glorify him. Well, let's move on. What does Romans 8.28 say? God is working how many things together for good? Just the good things? No. God is working all things in the life of a follower of Jesus together for their good. And if you read the entire context around Romans 8.28, it's a context of suffering. Ten verses before, he speaks about the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. So as I come down the home stretch uh, tonight, here's the answer, the question I want to ask. What does this Job, this godly man do in the middle of the storm? Does he curse God? Satan says he would and his wife accused him, called him to do. Nope. Notice verse 20. Job responded to devastation with adoration. Then, after all these calamities, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. Now, on the one hand, he did not attempt to hide his grief. Everything that he had owned had been destroyed. He heard the most devastating news that a dad can hear. He is absolutely shattered in the heart with profound anguish and grief. And his mourning was not only private, his mourning got public. The rending of the garments, the shaving of the head, the casting of himself to the ground were all public expressions of profound grief. And so Job reminds us that there's nothing sinful about grieving or mourning in a dark valley of adversity. God has taken away the believer's old stony heart. He's given them a heart of flesh. And so when, we, when I walk through storms, when the believer walks through storms, our hearts are shattered over those storms. And this is what Job is doing. He's relieving his grief to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with grieving. What is wrong is to remain there and get bitter. But notice, what does Job do? He doesn't grumble, complain. He doesn't curse God. 
as Satan wagered that he would. He doesn't turn away from his faith. No, he responds in a most amazing manner. This is one of the high points in the entirety of the Bible as it relates to a genuine believer in the Lord. What does he do? He sanctified his mourning with worship. He not only bowed down in grief, he also bowed down in worship. It's one thing to praise the Lord, thank the Lord, sing the, to the Lord when the wind is at your back. It's quite another thing to worship when the winds of adversity are howling in your face. But this is amazing. Instead of allowing Satan to move his heart away from God, he pressed in even closer to God. And he worshipped the one who is a very present help in time of trouble. We need to learn how to worship in the storm. Job teaches us to worship God even when there's no answers. It's not essential that I have all the answers. It is essential that I worship my Lord in the valley of adversity. As a matter of fact, the born-again believer to some degree already knows the divine purpose for them to walk through valleys of adversity. Because Peter said, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory of God at the revelation of Jesus. You notice what Job did? As he worshipped God, he reminded himself of the brevity of life. He said in verse 21, I'm coming to the finish line. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. A few moments ago, I was the wealthiest man in the land, but now I have nothing. Absolutely naked of any temporary but I'm no poorer today than I was when I was born into this world. And furthermore, all these material things I've accumulated, they have to be surrendered at my death anyway. So I won't boast of tomorrow because tomorrow's a day in the calendar of a fool. I'll consecrate my life in worship today. Notice again in verse 21, second half of the verse, while Job was in this heart attitude of mourning and worship, he not only reminded himself of the brevity of life, he reminded himself of the sovereignty of God. He said, the Lord gave, and who, take, who took away? The devil? No, the demon over Trenton? The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He didn't say the Lord gave and Satan has taken away. 
he knew all these blessings had come from God. And, and now God in his wisdom had purposed to take them away. He knew that his children were a gift from the Lord. God loaned these ten children to me. And now God in his wisdom has purposed to take them back. If Job was a false worshiper, he would have screamed out in rage, Oh, these detestable Sabians and Chaldeans. Oh, the fire of God that has destroyed my property and my servants. Oh, the wind of God that has killed my children. But no. Through the streams of tears, he worshipped the Lord his God and his sovereignty and said, The Lord has given. The Lord has taken. Job ignored Satan. You can read the 42 chapters of this book. He never mentioned Satan one time. <laughs> I'll tell you, if I'm in a dark valley of adversity, it wouldn't be comforting or assuring to imagine that Satan's in control. <laughs> it wouldn't be comforting or assuring to think that God and Satan have equal power and they're battling it out for supremacy in my suffering, no. No, he says the Lord gave it. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know we're reading about Job and we know what's going on. We can read the text. We know about the conversation in heaven. He knew nothing about this. But he knew he was not alone. His God was there. And Satan would come back one more time and accuse him after all this. And Job would lose his health. Satan would come to Job and say, if you allow me to attack his health, when his health disappears, he'll quit worshiping me. But he continued to worship. Even in poor health, and lastly, while Job was in a hard attitude of worship, he reminded himself of the worthiness of God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He blessed God as his supreme treasure in the dark valley of adversity. And Job's response teaches genuine followers of Jesus to worship the giver and not as temporary gifts. If we're not careful, we can become guilty of making idols out of the temporary gifts, whether it's wealth, whether it's health, whether it's family. But the Bible says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. God desires that our worship would be totally to him. And all of these temporary benefits should be given their proper value. But never take that preeminent place of worship that is reserved for only God alone. And you notice how it ends in verse 22? In all of this, Job did not sin charge God with wrong. 
Now, Job had some imperfections that God dealt with as the book progresses, but God puts this man on display as a godly man who worships even in the deep and darkest storms of life. And you know, his testimony of worship has not only ended up in his great benefits, but it's blessing us tonight. Even these thousands of years later, God had amazing purposes in the suffering of this man, not only in his own life, but hundreds of thousands, even millions of followers of Jesus. He responded in the valley of adversity with worship. And may we respond in the same way. Let's pray together, young people and adults. And we will close this meeting tonight. Thank you, Father, that when I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you were with me. Thank you, Father, that in every trial, every trouble, every persecution, every crisis, every adversity, you are in charge and you're putting the worship of your children on display. Help us to be faithful, to adore you, even when everything is taken away. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.